You are listening to the 3CR podcast of In Psychedelia. In Psychedelia is broadcast live every Sunday from 2pm. For more information, head to 3cr.org.au. Good afternoon. This is In Psychedelia on 3CR Community Radio, 855am, 3CR Digital and 3cr.org.au. Uh, my name is Nick, and uh, this afternoon on the show we are going to be uh, crossing live shortly to Ash Blackwell, who's down at uh, the Exhibition Centre for their Hemp Health and Innovation Expo. In fact, we might even... I'll, I'll just quickly check. Hey, Ash, are you there? <laughs> uh, not quite. Uh, we'll, we'll cross to Ash in a sec. Um, we're also going to be hearing from uh, Eric Lemire-Pike, who is one of the uh, organisers of Bohemian Beat Freaks Festival, a uh, festival up in northern New South Wales that had to move uh, in the last week uh, on the lead-up to the event, uh, about three hours north over to Queensland because of some uh, debacle with the local police and with permitting issues. Uh, and also going to be hearing from Robbie Swan, who is um, Fiona Patton's partner, who has uh, been working in adult industry lobbying. Uh, he's uh, been writing for a long time and uh, also we're, back in the day was going to, going to festivals and he's got some uh, interesting stories to share with us. So we'll um, hear that shortly. Let's just... Uh, hey, Ash, are you there? No, no, I'm going to have to uh, recall him. Um, so I'm going to do that right now while you listen to this. This is in Psychedelia. Government support has led to many of our greatest medical discoveries cancer treatments, the polio vaccine, the mapping of the human genome. With such a wide reach, governments can push fledgling research into the spotlight. But, just as easily, they can sweep critical research into the dark. Which is exactly what started happening 50 years ago with the war on drugs. As Western governments cracked down on drug use outside the laboratory, they tried to control what happened inside it, too. They began placing some substances in a special category. One for drugs considered highly abusable, totally unsafe, and, most importantly, medically useless. But the decisions were political, not scientific. And substances thousands of scientists were actively researching. Cannabis, psilocybin, LSD, MDMA, were categorized as having no medical benefits. That put scientists in a bind. To prove the value of these substances, they needed to research them. But government funding completely dried up, and all the red tape made it virtually impossible to carry out research. For 50 years, scientific progress has been dragged down. Research that might have led to treatments for everything from migraines to PTSD, it all got lost in a bureaucratic wasteland. 50 wasted years is enough. Urge our policymakers to end these senseless restrictions and let scientists do their work. And uh, one of those substances that has come out of the prohibitionary fray, at least in some parts of the world, and to some extent, not completely, uh, is cannabis. And right now, Ash Blackwell is down at the Hemp Health and Innovation Expo. Ash, are you there? I am. How is the uh, feeling down at the Hemp Health and Innovation Expo? It's good. It's such a good event. Um, there's like a lot of stalls here and a real diversity of stalls. Like, so things about like growing hemp 
um, things on medical cannabis, things on cultivation, like just such a wide range of different things here. Uh, now, before we uh, go and cross, I understand you've got some guests to uh, to chat to, but just uh, quickly, um, there uh, it's it, obviously it's festival season, a lot of things going on. Katani Gardens has had events uh, both days today, but uh, there was an event up in New South Wales uh, yesterday where uh, unfortunately another death has occurred. Um, have you read about this this morning? I did. I ranted a little bit on the New South Wales Police Facebook page. Um, I think it's disgusting. Like, the, this is another event where um, last night on our Facebook page we shared a post from the Snip-Off uh, page about um, the police were once again confiscating people's tickets if a drug dog indicated on them without any evidence that they had drugs on them whatsoever. So, you know, presumably this is quite possibly them, their equipment, the dog thing, you know, a tool that they use, malfunctioning, and then them taking people's property. I, I don't know how it's legal. No, and it's... And, um, Oh, sorry, well, and, and this, and this is instead of like focusing on safety, they're kind of smashing it with these hardline approaches. And somebody once again has died, so I don't know how they can continue to justify this kind of approach. It's it's just outrageous. We're um, getting a little bit of uh, feedback on your uh, mic, so maybe just a little bit further back from the mic. But uh, you've got some guests guests there at Hemp Health and Innovation Expo. Uh, uh, introduce us. Who have you got around you? So we have Ms. Guidance, and we have. Uh, Max Stone. All right, let's uh, let's have a chat with them. All right, I'll pass you on to Miss Guidance. Hi, Nick. Hello, Miss Guidance. Uh, uh, welcome to lovely Melbourne. I see we've brought out the uh, grey and cold weather for you. Yes, um, I'm so fabulously excited by that, by the way, because I really, really, really don't like hot weather. <laughs> and you live in northern New South Wales. That's right, where it's a bit cooler and breezier, even though it has been getting hotter these days. So Nimbin has brought down the Hemp Embassy to the Hemp Health and Innovation Expo. How's the uh, response been this weekend with uh, medical cannabis spreading and with the industry growing? Yeah, definitely. You've uh, just hit the nail on the head there. Definitely heaps of interest in uh, getting educated about medical cannabis. Uh, It's not just us here. There's a few other stalls as well that are offering basically advice through the the um, rather, uh, well, difficult and disturbing uh, bureaucracy to get it uh, sort of legally. Uh, But there's also just lots of education about the importance and uh, the benefits of of cannabis as a medicine. But, Nick, it's just full on here as in there is food galore, there's clothing galore, there's building uh, materials, there's all things about growing and, uh, like, soils and there's, people that make amazing glass art and it's quite incredible the um, actual range of uh, as in the expo has um, very cleverly really got together a major sort of uh, cross-section of I guess um, a newly growing industry. We're 20 years behind um, Canada and Israel and China but what the hell, Australia catches up at some point. Yeah, we're just like behind a little bit. Um, now, there have been a lot of uh, talks this weekend as well. Have you managed to catch any of the uh, talks? Oh, no, actually, I haven't. I've been, oh, I've been busy just talking to people at the stall. Unfortunately, um, I haven't been in to see the talks. But, yeah, there's been, a, once again, a big range of people speaking, anything from talking about how cannabis helps, say, epilepsy, through to people talking about, indeed, how to sort of breed and, and grow really interesting uh, plants. Uh, 
one of the disappointments, though, was the very famous uh, cannabis activist, but also expert gardener, grower, breeder, Ed Rosenthal, um, sadly didn't make it to the event. He didn't get into Australia. Oh, dear. So um, <laughs> that's been a little disappointment, I think, for people. But, um, you know, all that aside, uh, definitely there's so much other interesting people. And, uh, and I guess, once again, one of the nice things about events like this is really, indeed, networking and getting people together. Yeah, well, um, you, have you been doing a little bit more of that <laughs> while you've been down in Melbourne, which I sort of half know the answer to, but... <laughs> um, oh, definitely. There's, um, I mean, the embassy, I guess, likes to bring along our own special vibe. So um, we've got the big joint here, and we've got the 420 combi, and we're basically like a, um, a dangerous cult. We're recruiting young people to come up and join us for Mardi Gras. <laughs> Excellent. So we've, got, we've got flowing robes and beards and they just can't resist us. Now, later on in the program, we're going to be hearing from Robbie Swan, uh, who's talking to us about uh, his experience at uh, Aquarius Festival, which which really started oh. off Nimbin and is sort of the, um, you know, the origins of Mardi Gras has its origins in there as well. Totally. Oh, wow. That's uh, so cool. Robbie is a very cool dude and he's one of um, our very regular visitors up north um, during Mardi Gras because, of course, he um, is part of the uh, the cult of Fiona Patton. Yes, <laughs> who it looks <laughs> and, like uh, may be elected how, after all. <laughs> and how is, like, has Fiona um, managed to stay with her seat? She's, uh, it's at 89.7% of the vote counted for the northern metropolitan region and Fiona Patton is currently elected. Uh, so eleven percent to go. It could change. We don't know. It might come down to a, a very close uh, mark, but uh, it looks like wow. Fiona might be back in. Okay, well, that's really wonderful to hear because Fiona is one uh, a really long time and really important champion of uh, cannabis law reform, as well as, of course, other drug law reform as well. She's one of the few. Re- well, isn't isn't is she the Reason Party now? Re- Reason Party, it? yes, yeah. uh, formerly the Australian Sex Party. <laughs> Yeah, correct. I was going to say, well, I think that's very um, appropriate, that name, because, yeah, a kind of reasonable voice. Um, we've just got sort of fear and hysteria amongst all the old blokes. It's really lovely that um, other people in Parliament can bring in, um, I mean, a, yeah, just a bit of sensible discourse uh, to get everybody sort of focused on the things that really matter without trying to manipulate and frighten everybody into, I don't know, basically becoming a, a big jail or something. So it's really exciting to hear that she will hopefully be championing um, not just that cause, um, but also other causes to make sure people's lives are, um, are definitely free and um, and... I don't know what else to say about that. <laughs> well, um, she's, but anyway, I think Tuesday is. I think Tuesday is when we'll find out um, for sure. Although it might take a little longer, we'll, we'll see. Yeah. Um, thank you okay, very much. Well, we'll be doing some witchy magic to yes. see how it happens. <laughs> thank you very much, Ms. <laughs> Guidance. Um, I okay. understand there's some other folk there. Yes, there's Max Stone, um, long-time Mardi Gras activist, and um, he'll probably have a few words to say about uh, the importance of this week and uh, for. Embassy in Mardi Gras. Thank you very much, Ms. Gardens. Greetings. Greetings, Max. How are you? Oh, pretty good. I should say bigjoint.org, first thing I say, shouldn't I? What's that? First? Bigjoint.org. Bigjoint.org. That's your website. Uh, Max What's Stone, that? you've come down from uh, Nimbin into the, the big city of Melbourne. Uh, how, how is everyone receiving the, the hemp embassy? Oh, 
Everywhere we go, we get smiles. <laughs> I mean, you know, we're not doing a bad thing here. You know, we're trying to we're trying to get something so that something is free. So, what have been the uh, the main goals uh, that uh, the Nimbin Hemp Embassy volunteers and the people working there uh, have been wanting to push at this Hemp Health and Innovation Expo? Well, basically, what we we, we, you know, we don't sort of do it like that. The object of the exercise is to educate as many people as you can so they can then re-educate other people as they go along. It's like a mesh network. Is how we do it. And uh, how how do you feel the uh, the network is working there at? Uh, oh, the well, once people understand that they're, they're, <laughs> some things are possible, then they can start to do it. You know, one of the key things of leadership is you go in the direction and people follow you. Max, were you involved um, at all back in the day with the Aquarius Festival? Uh, no, I wasn't. I'm not quite old enough for that. But I was in when I started building websites for the movement in 1995, so I've been around quite some time. What was your uh, introduction in, uh, in the mid-90s? Uh, well, I, I wrote a book called The Big Bong Theory, which is about you know, the idea of building like you build a big bong on the side of the road like a big prawn or a big pineapple. <laughs> and... Um, you have a big bong burger bar. Have a look at that. dot com. <laughs> <laughs> we'll we'll collect these links and post them up uh, when the uh, when the podcast goes up. Um, any any uh, final thoughts from the Hemp Health and Innovation Expo before I uh, go back on to Ash? Well, uh, you know what my final thought is. You know, my final thought about this thing is that there's only one thing we haven't tried to get the law changed, and that's magic. Yeah, <laughs> because that's what we need to actually do. Is everybody's trying to change the law? into something that they can make money out of. I think we should be trying to um, disappear the law. Just disappear it. Wouldn't that work? Well, if you've got the right uh, right spell, the right incantation, well, the right... I know, I know. This, we've, I know we've, got to, we've got to do a lot of work on it. I'm not saying it's easy because it's magic. No, no, that's but right. But then again, we haven't tried it. But enough people believe in the magic when we do the spell, it could work, wouldn't it? I think that's how it works. Enough people believe it, and <laughs> you're there. Thank you very much, uh, Max. You enjoy the so rest of the afternoon. First weekend in May. The first yes. the spell will be happen on either April the 20th or the first weekend in May in Nimbin at the Mardi Gras. We'll be the there. best festival on earth. We'll and be you there. should. You really should send the whole team up. Oh, we, we've, we've been wanting to bring, for the past couple of years, <laughs> and this year, I mean, next year is the year. 2019 is our year. We'll be up there. Excellent. All right. When you do, come straight, find the Nimbin Hemp Embassy. Oh, we will. Look for the Nimbin Hemp Bar, and that's where you'll find Max Stone. I'll find, I'll find you, Max Stone. Thank you very much. Okay. See you there, mate. <laughs> See <Thanks>. ya. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to just about leave it there, but any, um, any final thoughts from the, uh, from the Hemp Health and Innovation Expo, Ash? Well, just one. I, I would just say that when, when people think about cannabis, um, I think that this particular event really broadens what you're thinking about there. It's not just recreational, you know, pot that people smoke. There's such a wider range of opportunity for, for this plant. Thank you very much, Ash, and you enjoy the rest of the afternoon. Um, and um, I don't know, bring us a gift. <laughs> I'll do that. Enjoy the rest of the afternoon. All right, cheers, Nick. Thank you very much. That was uh, Ash Blackwell live from the Hemp Health and Innovation Expo with Ms. Guidance and Max Stone from the Nimbin Hemp Embassy who are down there at the moment. Hi, this is Hugo the Poet. You're listening to 3CR, and by doing that, you're supporting Community Radio, an incredibly important institution in our times. 
This is in psychedelia. Nick Wallace here, sitting across from Robbie Swan. Robbie Swan is Fiona Patton's partner in uh, both life and crime, uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, has been around uh, political issues for the best part of his life. I think it's fair to say. Yeah, um, Robbie, welcome to In Psychedelia. Good to be with you, as they say on the, the political shows, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, what I want to talk about with you today is um, this idea of culture war. Um, and I just, I just want to start it with the, the, the term culture war to me, like I first heard it when I was in probably primary school during the Howard era, era um, and it wasn't something that I really understood that well then. And it, I feel like it went away for a bit and it's sort of come back mostly with the Liberals um, over the past 10 years or so. Um, but it's still sort of a concept of, I, I feel like it's, it's older than I am and I haven't really got a grasp of it because it's hard to sort of get a, a big idea of, of these things unless you speak to people that were around um, to, to see the evolution of this term. So can you give us a little bit more light into the term culture war in, in context of Australian politics over the you know time that I was younger and not alive and some of the listeners as well? <laughs> Well, I mean, I can only draw on my own experience here, Nick, and I, I mean, there's probably plenty of people from uh, the 50s and 60s who were sort of teenagers and early 20s then in that sort of, uh, you know, bodgy beatnik era who would also feel that there was a culture wars being waged there. But um, for me, it sort of, you know, uh, w was pretty much wrapped around the Vietnam War when you know, my, I and all my mates uh, were due to be shipped off to Vietnam to, uh, you know, machine gun uh, Asian peasants in the field for the, you know, for the sake of um, American he hegemony. And, you know, of course, we were not going to do that, you know. Um, and the reasons that we weren't going to do that were wrapped up in, um, in a lot of other kind of cultural areas. But, uh, you know, drugs was one of them. I mean, drugs, you know, I psychedelics were an incredibly powerful influence in uh, in shifting people's opinions about uh, violence in all forms you know including that war and um, you know so I mean I started taking LSD in about I think I had my first LSD trip in 1969 um, you know up in uh, Gove in the Northern Territory when Jimi Hendrix's first album came out, uh, you know, was it I'm Ex Experienced or something. Are You Experienced, I think was the name of it. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, the music and the drugs, you know, for me, spearheaded the political direction of a generation at that point. And it's it's interesting. So 1969, so I've been doing a little bit of um, research back into the, the history of um, Australia's drug laws, and it's about that point in time, 1969 to about 1972, there was a big uh, inquiry going on into the way that Australia's drug laws worked uh, in Victoria, um, the, uh, the, the sort of uh, found, foundations of our current act were being put into place, the Drug, Drugs, Poisons and Controlled Substances mm -hmm. Act. Um, and in, in Parliament, there was a lot of talk about um, the counterculture movement, especially the use of, of psychedelics, um, uh, sort of creating troubles for some of the plans like the, the Vietnam uh, the Vietnam War. So it's, it must have been quite an interesting time. How did... How how did the psychedelic experience, I mean, we, we can sort of guess um, from our own experiences today, but how, how did it sort of change the perspective on what ought to be going on in the world? Obviously, you know, as you said, the Vietnam War was not very good, but what other, what other things were going on then 
that looks like they could use with a, a push in a different direction? Well, I mean, I suppose, um, you know, I mean, all facets of life really were affected by, uh, you know, people taking psychedelics. Uh, you know, I mean, the first instance from, you know, smoking weed, but after that, you know, very quickly from you know, the effects of LSD and mescaline and psilocybin and, uh, and all of those sort of more powerful um, hallucinogens. Um, it's, it's uh, but let me say that it wasn't um, all. There were some parts of that counterculture movement that didn't really get into drugs much. And I always remember having this uh, discussion with Jack Waterford, who was the editor of the Canberra Times for 20 years afterwards, but who was really, you know, the man with the megaphone leading the Vietnam moratorium movement for us in Canberra. I mean, he was, a you know, an, a, an arts law student at ANU in his second year, rambunctious kind of type uh, you know and uh, he was the one though that really you know drove that that movement and uh, I remember having an argument with him one night where he said to me uh, you know you'll never make a good revolutionary you know you'll never you know be a, a a good revolutionary because you use drugs and you know that's counterproductive when you're trying to bring about a revolution now I don't know what kind of you know whether he was a trot or a Marxist Leninist or you know just a kind of a you know, sort of uh, revolutionary from somewhere else. But um, I, I never agreed with him. I thought that, you know, drugs and also to a degree, the emerging um, sort of spiritual movements from the East, mm. which really landed in Australia in the late 1960s when the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi came out here after he'd finished with the Beatles uh, in India in the in the mid-60s. And, um, you know, that uh, that had a really profound influence here. A lot of people picked up meditation and there was a lot of spin-offs in other areas like Mahikari and the Rosicrucian Order and a lot of different kind of mystical philosophical groups. But the meditation was the main thing that really also did alter consciousness, um, you know, probably as much as drugs did, but in a different way. Um, so we're seeing there the, um, the, the drugs are, are like a catalyst for the evolution of certain cultural elements that whole communities are taking substances and then moving away from uh, what their parents might have preferred that they do or what uh, Canberra Times editors thought that they should be, how they should be acting in terms of political revolution or uh, and toward um, uh, different new ideas, novel ideas um, from other parts of the world. Uh, so, I, But, I mean, that's mm. not necessarily political, although everything's sort of political. They weren't like. Doing yoga isn't necessarily a political act, but at the same time, it sort of changes everything. <laughs> well, it does. People, well, people when, start doing things differently. When you, start well, living it, life differently. Exactly. I mean, when you change someone's consciousness, you, you change their outlook and their activities in, in, in all fields of life. I mean, that's just a given. It's like when you're in sleep consciousness or dreaming consciousness, you know, you don't do things in the same way as you do when you're in waking consciousness. And so if you're in a, a different level of consciousness from a, a drug or from, uh, you know, meditating and doing yoga... It affects everything that you do. Um, and to that degree, I mean, I think that the, the effects of uh, psychedelics, especially LSD in those days, um, you know, one of the most, anyone who's taken LSD will report that one of the major things that happens is that they see the world through patterns rather than through um, hard edges. Mm. You know, the world starts to be patterned and, you know, you see roads and trees and everything, not so much, you see them more like impressionist painters. You know, when you take LSD. And so you get a different view on the world in that way. And like when the drug wears off, sure, it goes away, but part of it still remains. I mean, I think the Vedic culture calls it Lesha Vidya, you know, the remains of ignorance or the remains of experience that you've had before. Um, that sticks with you a bit. And, you know, the more you do that, um, 
you know, the more it does to a point. I mean, I think there's a point that you can get to where, you know, you, uh, you know, you need to stop taking them because you, <laughs> it's like you're not getting anything anymore. But who knows? That's different for everybody. You know. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's something that's a question I think we're still asking um, around these these movements today. And there's still people certainly that. Uh, Probably psychedelics aren't necessarily good for, but um, that's not the uh, issue we want to touch on no. today. Um, now, so so in 1969, let's let's move forward a couple of years. So the Vietnam War is is sort of trudging on. Um, now you started uh, growing some some plants for the for the war effort. Was this? Can you go yeah. into that a little bit? Well, I mean, um, a lot of us, uh, you know, I mean, I was part of a group of about 20 or 30 people living uh, at Lennox House, which is just off. No, it's just on the ANU campus. In Canberra, and uh, you know, we were pretty hardcore revolutionaries. I mean, and and you know, taking using drugs at that point really emboldened us in what we did. And uh, you know, some of them, some of us be- became incredibly, um, uh, you know, sort of emboldened in, in in trying to stuff the you know the draft or the uh, you know the, the conscription scheme. Mm-hmm. And there were some very elaborate schemes that were cooked up there that you know, really did stuff it in many ways for the government made it very difficult for them, um, things that people would never do normally because they risked, you know, five or six years in jail for, you know, interfering in state, you know, affairs for doing that, but they did it. Um, well, I mean, I... I young people's lives are on the line. I suppose it's a bit of a motivator. <laughs> oh, absolutely it is. Uh, but, the, but using those hallucinogenic drugs also gave you a... I don't know, it was very hard to describe, but it really gave you an impetus that, say, alcohol would not have given you, you know. Mm. It gave you a vision thing to move forward, which is really about, you know, what you need. And so, I mean, uh, my small group of friends, half a dozen of us, we actually moved out to the country just outside Canberra and, and put in, you know, we grew 600 plants. We put 600 marijuana plants in you know you know fairly decent crop and you know we then um you know that money was that we were going to get from that was to be put back into the anti-war effort Mm. um and we also used to run draft resistors um from the through the uh, kosciuszko national park down to Jihai and then through into victoria through the back roads to stop the commonwealth police on the on the hume highway from uh you know from grabbing them as they would try and move between sydney and melbourne uh so there was a lot of sort of subterfuge going around there. We also had set up a um, a lab uh, where, uh, you know, uh, Dave Sodland, who was a Canadian biochemist, had come out here at ANU and he had set this, you know, to start producing LSD. Um, so it was a fairly sizable production. I mean, when, when we got busted eventually, uh, you know, unfortunately we never harvested the crop because the, uh, the mod squad from Sydney uh, came down. The mod squad being the um, sort of vice police, is that...? Yeah, they were the vice police, but they were sort of... They'd taken a leaf out of that movie Easy Rider where cops in America oh, yeah. started dressing as hippies, you know, and really cool with, you know, aviated glasses and long hair and all that. and uh, Infiltrating. Know, infiltrating, that's yeah. right. And so, uh, I don't know, when they were tipped off about this crop, uh, they came down from Sydney and uh, set up camp there to arrest us and bust us, which they did. Did you, did you know it was them straight away or did it...? Oh, yeah. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I, I, uh, I had a rifle in my hands because I was you know, shooting rabbits for the dog. And, uh, of course, we'd just taken a really large amount of mescaline before that. <laughs> and uh, so when they – the cops were drunk, actually, when of they course. busted us. Of uh, they were. <laughs> we, we found that out later because it was like, you know, four dozen beer cans that had been consumed up in yeah. their little camp and they weren't expecting this. But, um, you know, they, they I knew immediately what was going on and, mm. uh, you know. But when they went back to the house, I mean, it was interesting at that time. They went there and looked at the lab 
and just didn't even twig to what it was. They had yeah. no idea, and they just sort of thought it was some mad Bloody scientist. Nerds. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so they left that alone, and uh, you know, so I went off to jail, and you know. So were you in um, in jail for when we? I didn't go to jail very long. Now I got a, a six month suspended sentence, but right. I think I spent about three or four weeks in Cooma and and uh, and uh, Queanbeyan yeah. lockups. You know, and just being shipped between the two, and uh, that was an interesting experience on. With a lot of mescaline under your belt. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so after that, so you, you're out, but then um, obviously, I, I suppose you're being watched at this point. Perhaps, Correct. yeah, your your name is on a list. Um, but this is also sort of the the genesis time, I, I guess, of um, of the progenitors to Australia's big festivals today. Yeah. Um. So, and at ANU was where one of the um, one of the the major ones uh, took off, and you were a security guard at the time. I was with um, Serge Martich Osterman's uh, Shaolin Temple Boxing School, <laughs> who were, were yeah, kind of basically stoned hippies who, who knew a bit of, uh, you know, sort of... Knew how to uh, kick people in the face. Yeah, though. that's right. Um, but, uh, yeah, we were the security guards, supposedly, and uh, there wasn't much security supplied. But I, I did get, you know, I mean, I was, I was selling drugs there on campus before that anyway, so, you know, that was my profession at that stage. <laughs> uh, so it wasn't very far removed, but... Yeah, I mean that was uh, that was an extraordinary festival. I think it really triggered uh, most of the other festivals that came along after that. And this was Aquarius Festival at ANU. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. Um, in 1971, and it it kicked off the uh, Aquarius Arts Festival in uh, Nimbin in 1973, which then became a regular event. And you know, pretty much today is the um, what they call it now, you know, Nimbin's annual festival in May, the, what they call it now? Mardi Gras. Mardi Gras. Yeah, yeah, Mardi Gras. We can do things without having to have entrepreneurs to tell us how to do it. We don't have to have barbed wire um, at the gates. Um, we don't have to have policemen ordering our affairs. It was that, that peak of excitement at the end of the um, anti-war, anti-conscription movement when anything seemed possible. The Whitlam government had been elected and uh, we're out to change the world. I'm sure that a lot of people are going to go from here and carry on with this way of life, you know? Like, a lot of people have already offered land that, for people to live on. Yes, it has gone on. Here we are 20 years later in a thriving town. Um, directly after the festival, we created the, one of the largest community world. But, I mean, you know, the music... The music was, uh, you know, incredibly important in those days. I mean, in that festival, there were two sides to that festival. There was one was the music and the other was... Uh, you know, well, the drugs and the politics. Uh, I suppose there were three, really. Uh, you know, po- politics was very much a part of that festival. You know, the, that was the first time, uh, I think, day two of the uh, of the festival, the uh, Australian Federal Police riot squad, 100 strong, stormed um, the grounds between the Chifley Library and the ANU, um, uh, you know, union building and uh, beat the crap out of 100 students on so- the... So just going back on this, so so you this is a this is a music festival on a university mm-hmm. campus mm-hmm. with a bunch of young people who are presumably taking substances like acid, yep. um, really just sort of connecting and the sort of thing that people would know today. And one hundred uh, federal police turn up in riot squad gear with the with the shields and the batons yep. and everything, yep. yep, and charged the crowd. They charged the crowd. They beat the hell out of people, mainly women. Right. Uh, that was pretty obvious. There was, you know, there were bloodied men. Well, mainly women and men running everywhere, but it was just huge. And um, there's only one 
record of that in Australia today that I can find, and that's on the alternative uh, website milesago.com. It was not reported in mainstream press? It's never reported. Uh, it never reported at all. And, uh, you How know, bizarre. it was. It was incredibly bizarre. And, um, you know, I mean, we all locked ourselves in the union building uh, after it. We barricaded ourselves in, and the uh, plans were laid uh, that night for uh, what was called the Day of Rage the next day, where 300 students you know, many of them bleeding still and stuff from the day before, marched on uh, the Australian Federal Police headquarters in uh, in the city and uh, another 100 people were arrested there, um, including Jack Waterford. Why, so why did the riot police turn up to a relatively peaceful festival in the first place? Well, that's really hard to say. Um, I, I don't think... Um, I don't think anyone knows because it was never investigated, uh, because it was never reported. Mm. And, um, you know, I mean, I mean, back at the time it was well known. I mean, everybody in that scene was talking about it for months afterwards, about what a travesty mm. it was. But it, the Canberra Times never reported it. Uh, you know, ABC Radio and TV never reported. No one reported the fact that there'd been this mass bashing of students by federal police. And... Um, I don't know to this day why that happened. And as I say, there's only one place you can read about it, and that's on milesago.com uh, by another guy who was there. So We might repost that link on the uh, Encyclopedia Facebook as well, so we'll make sure that you can uh, have a read of uh, the only other yeah. private source material <laughs> unless you've got somebody who was there that you can speak to. Yeah, that'd be good. Uh, change must take place no matter where one lives. The time moves on and... Uh, uh, this uh, hippie movement, is, uh, as, you, as you call it, uh, we call it the Aquarius movement, has come to Nimbin and uh, they've selected that they want to do their thing here and uh, together against, uh, against them coming because if they didn't come here, they, they, they'd go somewhere else. What about your own children? Do you think they might uh, be influenced enough to, to join this sort of lifestyle? Well, I'm rather pleased that my children and live in the comforts of their own home and see the way these people are living. Uh, I'd far, far sooner see it this way than for them to hear of this movement in other places and then wanting to go and join and not having a home to, to uh, observe it. The smell of the alternative cigarette sweetens the main street air and the word is out that the police are not bent on busting the town. It's rumoured the plainclothes men are camped in the bowling club. Um, okay, so, I mean, we're getting sort of a picture of, um, of the origins of a, of, a, of a culture war here because here's a, a separation, here's the state um, using its enforcers to crack down on a deviation uh, from, from what they desired that yeah. the young people were to do. You know, it was, you know, the parents coming in and saying, hang on a minute, you've got to, you've got to go and work in the, well, Vietnam, I suppose, because uh, this was around the time of the Vietnam oh, War. Yeah, so that was. was the speculation, wasn't it? That, Absolutely, yeah. That it was to do with the war. Yeah, I mean, look, I always thought that the cops took that, a leaf out of the Kent State University massacre, you know, where the police invaded the Kent State University in America in Ohio, um, and that they thought they'd just try something similar here because they mm. could and because they could get away with it. But um, Was it unprecedented at the time? Oh, totally, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've, it had never, ever happened before, and I don't think it's ever happened since, you know. No, I can't I mean, think of anything on no. that particular scale. <laughs> no, um, but, I mean, it was interesting because, um, you know, it... Um, it just, it, you're right, it did open up. I mean, that was a really evident, the culture wars there, that, you know, the them and us mentality. 
Of course, you know, I mean, there was, you know, Woodstock had just preceded that, uh, yeah. you know, in America. And, uh, you know, halfway through the festival, of course, Jim Morrison died, which sort of sent everyone into a spiral. And, <laughs> you know, how could he do that to us? You know? <laughs> mm. But, um, you know, it was... Uh, it was it was an extraordinary sort of moment, and I mean, the music in Australia at that point was also, uh, you know, really going through some incredible changes. And the, you know, the music at that festival featured, you know, stuff like, you know, which was almost kind of, you know, kind of bluesy, kind of weird stuff from Daddy Cool, um, you know, to Tom and Shad. the bands that performed at the Aquarius Festival in Nimbin in the early 1970s. This is in Psychedelia on 3CR and we are in the middle of a conversation with Robbie Swan about culture wars, the festival scene in the 1970s and how, how these things relate and how it bands comes the, forward you know, to now. Psychedelic bands, uh, you, know, you know, the best that we've probably ever had. Um, and so... Uh, you know, music, while you had this politicised political stuff going on during the day, the, the evenings were just consumed with music and everybody just sort of lost themselves in the music at that time, you know, and, and of course the drugs. Mm. And, and you know, it's worth remembering too that, um, you know, there was a certain amount of cut-through as well there. I mean, look, you know, uh, the Liberal Prime Minister of the day, uh, John Gordon, became a patron of Normal, the National Organisation to Reform Marijuana Laws. Mm. Um you know, I mean, Don Chip, who was a Liberal customs minister, you know, sort of opened up all the doors of, you know, and, and sort of got rid of the old censorship laws and things like that. Um, you know, there was a senior customs officer in Canberra at the time uh, who was well known for uh, putting on big LSD parties out at his, uh, 
little hotel, you know, out of Bungendore at the time. And, uh, you know, a lot of people in the bureaucracy in Canberra at that time had, you know, become tainted, if you want to say that way, or <laughs> that's the way that the, you know, the ordinary public would have seen it. But they were part of that as well. It wasn't, you know, completely them and us. Um, you know, there was a there was a bit of a crossover starting to happen back then. Mm. I mean, it's just always been a travesty, I think, that, uh, you know, politicians have just been so weak-kneed to... You know, and have never come out saying that they, uh, you know, they use drugs. And that is part one of my chat with uh, Robbie Swan, one of the founders of the Australian Sex Party, lobbyist for the adult industry and counterculture writer. In that piece, you heard music from Tarman Shud and Spectrum, uh, two Australian psychedelic bands who performed in Nimbin at the Aquarius Festival in 1973, a festival that sort of uh, really kicked off the melding of alternative lifestyle politics and music into Australia's counterculture that we know today. Uh, right now, you're going to hear the second part of a uh, interview with Eric Lemire Pike from Be- Bohemian Beat Freaks Festival um, in northern New South Wales. On the line now, we have Eric Lemire Pike, the uh, one of the um, coordinators of the Bohemian Beat Freaks and Rabbits Eat Lettuce Festival in New South Wales, uh, up in northern New South Wales. Eric, welcome to In Psychedelia. Yeah, cool. Thanks for having me on. We're picking up this chat with Eric Lemire Pike from Bohemian Beat Freaks and Rabbits Eat Lettuce Festival uh, that we started on last week's show. You can find the podcast of last week's show at freesiart.org.au and follow the links to the Psychedelia program page. Eric was telling us about the festival's history with stakeholders in the region and about a last-minute interstate move. Working with the local council, you said that when uh, when you when this happened before a few years ago that you spoke with the local council or that the local council approached you? Uh, well, so we, we had to bring the event up to Queensland to Woodford in 2015 because of the hefty user pay police bill that we were given. Um, and then following that event, we wanted to bring the event back down to New South Wales because that's our preferred site. That's that's the site we had a heart set on and also that's the site that's kind of centred around our core market. Uh, and and it, the event just didn't work in Woodford. We got 50 sound complaints, whereas the venue down in New South Wales is completely surrounded by mountains and noise just isn't an issue. Uh, so we, we came back down there, organised a meeting with the general manager and said, look, we've just run this event in Woodford. It was successful. However, we did get noise complaints. We want to bring the event down here. He was, he was for us. He, he saw that the police were kind of just not really uh, acting with logic and it was a bit of uh, hysteria and he decided to back us and, and that kind of helped us push our DA through and that's when we got our five-year permit. Although the permit was a bit, it wasn't the best permit because it did put a tradition in there that gave the New South Wales Police power to prevent the event from happening if they thought the event was unsafe or if they just decided the event was unsafe without any just cause or legitimate evidence. So how did um, how did council respond uh, this time around? Uh, well, council's kind that general manager unfortunately is not with council anymore, as he was our main supporter in there. 
Uh, so the council's had a reshuffle in staff, and the new the new staff in there aren't as supportive, or they're kind of just taking a back seat on it all. They didn't really want to get involved in the court case. They they didn't they didn't side with the police. They didn't side with us. They kind of just sat on the fence and just waited to see what happened. So you you moved it to Queensland. Now I've I've been involved with some bump in for festivals, and you know helped out on Gaten staff performed. That's a big thing to shift site that quickly. How did that uh, go? Uh, all, all of our crew are still in disbelief that we managed to pull it off and pull it off well. Um, so we were sitting around, or not sitting around, we were like half half set up at our old venue in New South Wales, waiting for, the, yeah, one of the stages is almost finished down in New South Wales, and the venue, the venue was prepped, the campground was marked out. We'd been working a week on site already, and we're waiting on Monday for this court decision, and we're going, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? And, and and it was looking like the judge was going in our favour, but then there was going to be a bunch of conditions attached. So we were getting these conditions on the phone with our attorneys, and as the conditions are coming through, first it's the $105,000 user pay police. So we're kind of trying to do the math on it. How much is it going to cost us to move up to Queensland? Uh, how much is it going to cost to keep these police on site? How that, how's that going to affect the vibe? And then basically the straw that broke it was look, that we were going to have to put a chain link fence around the entire event area, which is going to cost another $22,000. They wanted to have pat down tabletop searches in between the campground and the event. And that just would fully destroy the vibe that we worked so hard to create. Not only that, but the fence in itself would create a massive fire risk and fire hazard, which some reason wasn't discussed in court because you're effectively effectively trapping everyone in preventing them from using their own common sense to escape a fire if there were a fire yeah it does so, seem it does seem a bit um a bit like it sort of uh overtakes your whole process as you said there's a a, a long uh engaged process with various stakeholders ranging from the police to security to fireys to medicos uh that, that you engage with months before the event and then this court this court decision goes and throws all of those carefully uh carefully um discussed decisions uh and carefully uh careful strategies out the window with with just you know the whim of whatever whoever's uh in there at the room that time feels yeah well exactly right and like i know the rfs the rural fire service wouldn't support having the entire event area fence and neither would our bushfire consultant and as far as I'm aware, the New South Wales Police aren't the fire authority, so I'm not sure why they're giving advice on fire safety. That's what our bushfire consultants for, that's what the RFS are for, and that's why we liaise so closely with those agencies, because we take safety seriously. So what would it look like in an ideal situation then? Because the discussion here is about drug use and more broadly about festival safety. So for yeah. you, what would that collaboration involving New South Wales Police and a broader strategy look like if you were really well, considering safety at your events? Yeah, well, like the last three years has been ideal, uh, really. It's been an ideal scenario. Uh, we've had pre-event meetings before every single event. We've had post-event meetings after every single event. We've taken police feedback on board. We've, we're constantly tweaking our management plans. We're constantly improving our management um, the police on site have taken a harm minimisation approach so that they're approachable, so that if someone is feeling unwell, they can walk up to a policeman and say, can you please help me or my friend's in trouble instead of being scared to be arrested. Um, so, like, it's been going good, and all of a sudden it seems from this DEFCON incident, 
uh, that there's been a, a big backflip and a pushback, and now the New South Wales police seem to be the the government uh, weapons uh, to push back against music and art festivals. And this is this is what brings um, brings it all back to this idea of uh, culture war. Because we know that drug use is prevalent in all parts of society. If we were to take sniffer dogs through the uh, through a, 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 a glass tower in the middle of Sydney CBD or Melbourne CBD that's full of uh, financial uh, workers, I'm sure we would find plenty of substances in there too. But we don't do that. We don't we don't go and do these things. There is a specific target on a specific culture um, that takes uh, certain substances. Not to say that they take them any more than any other part of culture, but it does it does sort of seem that way that it is specifically targeted at a at a culture that um a lot of the people who are trying to make decisions and I think this is a thing that gets really upsetting because it is politicized after Defcon, but the people who are trying to make these decisions don't know what they're talking about. They're playing political yeah. games. They're trying to win votes in an imaginary yeah, it's, election. It's exactly right. Um... Yeah, and, and like you'd think, if they brought as many police and sniffer dogs they do at a music festival to the Melbourne Cup, you wonder what they'd turn up. So you mentioned before yeah. that you've worked a lot on the culture of your festival to help improve the safety of the event and had a successful, you know, kind of approach to that. What does that look like? How do you how do you create a safe culture at an outdoor music event? Yeah, well, we, pr- we promote heavily everyone looking out for each other. We promote the sense of community so that even if you're not mates with someone, if you see someone that's in a bit of trouble, you're going to go and help them, or you're going to ask security to help them, or ask medical. Uh, we've got uh, harm reduction organisations on site that work in conjunction with the medical team, so that if someone's needing to talk to someone, they can go to the harm reduction. If they think, oh, this harm reduction, go, oh, this person actually needs medical assistance, then they can pass them on to medical. Like all our security guards have first aid licences. We've got a dedicated emergency coordinator on site that coordinates our uh, festival resource, the same as the Triple O dispatch works. Like it's it's probably this one of the safest places to party and enjoy music uh, in Australia. Much safer than a pub or a club where someone can just jump in their car and try and drink drive home. We you know people are just going to walk down the festival path to their tent and go to sleep and sleep it off. Yeah, I, and and that's um and that's the thing of it. People are going to party no matter what. People party in the suburbs. People party at football games. People party in all sorts of situations. But these sorts of parties are prepared for partying. <laughs> prepared for all sorts exactly, of partying. Exactly. Yeah, we're set up to cater for all sorts of partying. Basically, we we have the resources there. We're mostly hospitals uh, on on after hours. We've got paramedics, nurses. And, like, our, our festivals specifically have an excellent track record with health and safety. We've, in the 11-year history of running these events, we've never, ever sent anyone to hospital in an ambulance for a drug overdose or an alcohol overdose. If any issues have all been treated on-site by our on-site medicals. That's how well-resourced our festivals are. And this also goes to show that the, the customers and the crowd are quite sensible people um, and kind of know how to look after themselves. So, well, well, I mean, all of this, the fact that 
all of that is fantastic. And the fact that your crew managed to like change state and still run oh. a successful <laughs> event. They are. I think we need to just stop for a moment and go, holy shit. <laughs> yeah, well, it's exactly. Like, we, we, we literally made the call to change the sites to move up to Queensland at 4 p.m. Monday. I got to site, I got to, uh, myself and our operations manager got to site at 10 p.m. Monday. We had trucks arriving uh, first thing Tuesday morning. From then it was just go, go, go. We had three days to do water plumbing. We had to install brand new water lines and water plumbing for the showers and the toilets and the drinking stations. We had to do two stages, rigging for two shading stores. We had to set out the market area, uh, lay out the campgrounds, lay out the ticketing area. We had to do absolutely everything that was meant to take 10 days in three days. And we still did a bloody good job. Like no one was complaining that the event experience was still like up there. Um, so basically, if we can do that in three days, to kind of imagine what we can do in 10 when we're actually kind of on site and prepared with more time. So it's just a te- it's a testament to our entire crew and our entire event staff, and and just goes to show the community support behind it, and just how every how much everyone cares uh, about what they're doing. So what about next year? Is it um, back to New South Wales, or is Queensland your new home for now? Uh, well, Bohemian Beat Freaks. I think we've definitely decided we're going to stay at this new venue. It's it's, it's a beautiful venue. It's got uh, water source. It's got kind of accommodation for the staff. It's quite picturesque. And the venue's been really happy with how things have run. The council seems supportive. The local police uh, seem supportive. They've, they've added some great comments at a recent news article in the Warwick Daily. Um, so it looks like we have support there from the emergency services and the council. We did a great first job for three days <laughs> running. So I, th- I think we'll be able to do a better job next time. Uh, as far as rabbit seat lettuce goes, like we'd love to keep our event at our New South Wales venue. So we just need to look at our legal options and also look at potential negotiation with the New South Wales police to try and get a workable scenario to try and hopefully get closer back to where we were a year ago. Um, yeah, it's, it's a shame to maybe lose that site. It's such an ideal venue. It's so beautiful. Everyone that comes to that venue just falls in love with it. But, um, yeah, and we do want to keep doing events down in New South Wales because that's where we're from and that's where we've always been. But we, you just got to roll with it. You just got to take it as it comes and take the most of what we've got. You are a crew to be reckoned with. Thank you very much for chatting with us today, Eric, and we're very impressed with what you guys managed to pull off considering uh, all the stress that you were put under. And I hope that things... I hope that this was just a blip in the radar, an attempt by the New South Wales Police to do something that they weren't sure what they were doing in the first place, and I hope that uh, collaboration is the name of the game rather than confrontation in the future. Oh, for sure, yeah, and I hope that maybe there's an election in March that might change things a bit. That's what I was thinking. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) and hopefully we see some of you Southerners up for Rabbit Seat Lettuce or Bohemian Beef Freaks to see what we do up here. That's good, yeah. Yeah, given given the ability to pull that off in a week, I'm seriously considering it. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much for chatting with us, Eric, and good luck. Uh, I mean, enjoy your weekend at Subsonic. (laughs) Yeah, no worries. Yeah, we're going to support the industry. It's all about um, sticking together in this one. Catch you later. See you, mate.
And that was Eric Lemire Pike from Bohemian Beat Freaks, Festi- Beat Freaks Festival talking to us about uh, the recent uh, attempt by New South Wales police to essentially extort them out of the market. Uh, and that crew's response, excellent response. This is in Psychedelia on 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM, 3CR Digital, 3cr.org.au. Make sure to follow the podcast, subscribe to the podcast on your favourite podcasting app, 3cr.org.au. Follow the links to the Psychedelia program page, and that is where you'll find us. Uh, we do have a fundraiser on at the moment. If you can help us to get some more bits and pieces, it's a, you know expensive job. It's a volunteer thing. Uh, we need more equipment to broadcast to you all the things that we want to broadcast. Uh, three, uh, follow the links to the In Psychedelia program page uh, at 3cr.org.au. We'll see you later. This has been a 3CR podcast. You can hear In Psychedelia live every Sunday from 2pm. Head to 3cr.org.au for more.